Welcome to the Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach Podcast. Machon Siach at SAR High School, honoring the memory of Belle de Kay Lindemann Zichrona Levacha, is the research arm of SAR High School, where faculty bridge theory and practice on matters of Jewish education, curriculum, and culture. The Grand Conversation Podcast features the faculty of Machon Siach and special guests discussing their work. I'm your host, Shmuel Hain, Rosh Beit Midrash at SAR High School, and co-director of Machon Siach. Our producer is Rabbi Avi Bloom, Director of Technology at SAR High School. For today's Grand Conversation podcast, we are thrilled to welcome the Honorable Robert Wexler and to welcome back Rabbi Tully Hartstark. The Honorable Robert Wexler is the president of the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace in Washington, D.C. He previously served as a Democratic member of Congress from 1997 to 2010, representing Florida's 19th 19th District in the House of Representatives before he retired to lead the center. Rabbi Hartstark, of course, you all know, is the principal of SAR High School and the dean of Machon Siach. For the past two years, Robert and Tully have worked together with the Center for Middle East Peace, partnering with Machon Siach on an educator's cohort, which we'll be discussing a bit later on. This podcast is in conjunction with this month's issue of Inside the Conversation, dedicated to the Israeli Palestinian conflict. So please check out this month's paper from Dr. Michael Koplo and our other papers and Siach talks on Israel education and on the conflict. We are recording this the day before the inauguration. We'll get into that a little bit. And we are also recording in a socially distanced mask fashion. So please excuse some of the muffled talk. Without any further ado, welcome, Robert. Welcome back, Tully. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to be here with you, Shmuel. Me as well. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. All right. I'm really excited about this conversation, and there's a lot to talk about. And we're going to focus on the work that uh, you two have been doing together uh, with high school educators around across North America on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But before we get to that, I wanted to take a few minutes to speak with you, Robert, uh, to ask you to reflect on the events uh, of the last couple of weeks. And I really wanted to uh, hear from you, someone who served for really an extended period of time in the Capitol, in the House of Representatives. What were your thoughts when you saw those events a couple of weeks ago as a former congressman? Where, how did that hit you uh, in the moment? And, and now that we're almost two weeks out and, and on the precipice of an inauguration, uh, what are your feelings and thoughts reflecting on the American project? Um, for, for me, as I suspect it was for most Americans, the, the view of the Capitol under siege was heart-wrenching. Um, for me, uh, having the extraordinary privilege of serving in the United States House of Representatives, I, I often talk with my constituents, uh, many of which were World War II or Korean War veterans, uh, tens of thousands of Holocaust survivors, um, certainly years ago, um, walking the halls of Congress, my my heart, and I, I'm, I'm not being melodramatic, I, it was a very special experience. It was moving every day. Um, that doesn't mean America is a perfect nation, but... Um, I'm a proud patriot, as are most Americans. And to see the Capitol desecrated in the manner in which it was, 
was nothing less than earth shattering. And um, I, I do think um, with great trepidation what those images mean for our children, quite frankly, because uh, I'm, I'm unfortunately 60 years old just recently. This is something I never Happy imagined. Um, and so until my 60th birthday, I, I didn't see anything like this. For teenagers today, my fear is that this now becomes, to some degree, commonplace. And, and this isn't commonplace, what happened. And the manner in which the president, um, to what degree he was responsible, that is not commonplace. In fact, almost everything that is occurring with this transition of power from one president to another is, is not commonplace. Simple things that became American traditions, like one first lady, lady inviting another first lady to the White House. Yes, it's, it's just social. It's more symbolic than anything else. But it actually has a deeper meaning. It's a, it, the deeper meaning is that, yes, we're Republicans, we're Democrats, or whatever anyone wants to call themselves, but ultimately we're Americans. And, and that's what needs to be restored. And that, to me, was what was jeopardized or crushed in the most violent of ways um, in terms of the attack on the Capitol. And the fact that a police officer uh, was killed and another ultimately passed away and that there were others that died just make it all that much more traumatic, obviously, in a, in a tragic way. Yeah, as as an educator, we were going through the day with students. And, and one of the moments that I think will stand out for our students is when Tully got on the school speaker system and spoke about what was unfolding. And, and at the time, I, I didn't think of it, but it was, it was really an important moment. Maybe you want to share, Tully, what you were thinking and, and what went into that decision to say something when you could have just said it was happening in the middle of the day and kids will see it on their phones when they leave and watch the news that night. Yeah, I, re I remember it. Uh, it, it, was, it was vivid in that uh, our, it happened on a Wednesday. Our school day ends at uh, 3.35. It's an earlier day. And uh, the news had come to me pretty close to the dismissal time. And uh, it was uh, at first difficult to believe. It actually popped up on my phone in the middle of a meeting that I was having. And as soon as it was over, uh, went to, uh, to check the news, the video, and to see what I could see. And it was 15 minutes before dismissal, but it felt like uh, we're a community of uh, Jewish Americans committed to, uh, you know, patriots, as you said, Robert, committed to the United States, and uh, to just allow kids to come home and have a sense that they were in school while this was happening, and it wasn't brought to their attention, something that um, you have to stop what we're doing to, to know what's happening and to, and to care, um, and so it felt extremely important, even though there was a certain sense of helplessness. There wasn't much or could do other than to say it out loud and to, to bring it to students' attention and to ask them to, to pray, to be concerned, to follow, and to be respectful to each other in doing so. Uh, and that was, uh, it was very important, small measure, but important for our community, I feel. I want to uh, turn now to the work that 
that you two are collaborating on. Uh, and first ask Robert, uh, it's striking to me that you talked about the impact on teenagers of seeing these events. Uh, and the fact that you and Tully are working with high school educators, I think, is, is very meaningful and reflects your, your passion for uh, the Middle East and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, minimizing that conflict, uh, and, and bringing that to the Jewish community and to our kids. I want to ask first, though, Robert, how you got involved with the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace. And, and why you transitioned from Congress to that work, and how the decision evolved to begin engaging with Orthodox leaders on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Sure. Um, I, I had the privilege of representing one of the largest Jewish communities in terms of a congressional district, and not only a, a Jewish community, but it was a Jewish community made up, as I said earlier, many World War II and Korean War veterans, people who um, had uh, oftentimes uh, volunteered in the 1967 or 73 wars. And in fact, Danny Abraham, who is the, the namesake, the funder of the S. Daniel Abraham Center for Middle East Peace, in 1973 moved his family uh, to Israel, and he volunteered at the airport uh, unpacking uh, for weeks supplies and things of that nature, like so many people did, whatever they could do. Um, I, I met Danny Abraham, who at that point lived in, in Palm Beach, and, and I lived in Boca Raton. And Danny was um, this extraordinary World War II veteran who had uh, achieved great success in business. He started out a Likudnik. He was very much a right of center person in terms of American-Israeli relations and Israeli politics. And he wound up having opportunities that few of us have, and that is he started to engage with Arab leaders. And what he learned was um, some of the, pre, uh, the, the perceptions that he had about Arab leaders and their view of Israel and the Jewish community weren't necessarily uh, exactly correct. And he started a lifelong mission to warm relations between Israelis and Arabs, Jews and Muslims, Jews and Christians in the communities uh, affected. And um, I began to travel with Danny and in many ways I learned the dynamic of the Middle East traveling on many, many trips, not just Israel and not just to the Palestinian territories, but to Egypt, to Jordan, to Saudi Arabia. Danny and I sat with the king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, it was actually the crown prince at the time, about two weeks after he had announced the Arab Peace Initiative, which, uh, while by no means the definitive peace document, but it was an extraordinary step at the time forward where essentially the leader of the Arab world in many respects, Saudi Arabia, had announced that under certain conditions, the Arab world would make peace with Israel. And that was dramatically different, of course, than the three no's and the posture that the Arab community, the Arab states had taken for decades. Um, and from there, 
developed a, a lifelong quest, quite frankly, on my part, to help improve conditions for Israelis and Palestinians, to reduce tension and violence, and as you say, Rabbi Hain, to, to begin to narrow the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And some people might say, well, isn't that for the Israelis and the Palestinians to do? And that's true. In an ideal world, they would do it. They wouldn't need help. But the fact is they need help. And the best place, the best, the best people to offer that help, at least from an Israeli perspective, um, is the United States. And I would maybe just close by saying to, in terms of students who may also wonder what's their role in this conversation, um, it's very important that, uh, in my view, that Zionist Americans engage themselves in the debate of Israeli, Palestinian, and American relations. Because if we don't engage in the debate, others will. And, and the important thing is for those who love the United States, who love Israel, and quest for peace, help lead this conversation. Uh, and uh, just to follow up with one question on when you shifted the focus or some of the focus and attention of the center to working with the Orthodox community, because that's when we first met and how uh, this partnership was born. Yes, um, it, it, it's no secret. Um, the, the modern Orthodox communities in the country, um, and I think this is a wonderful development, are playing a bigger and bigger role, not just in the Jewish community, but in the broader community at large. Uh, I'll, I'll use just one example, if I may. When I first started attending APAC conferences almost three decades ago, there were very few, uh, at least outwardly observant people, uh, who attended APAC conferences. If if at an APAC conference 25 years ago, you saw 10% of the people wearing kippot, that would be remarkable. Today at an APAC conference, I don't know what the percentage is, uh, a third or even more of the people um, are observant, uh, a part of the observant community. Um, whether it's JCRCs or, or local political or community organizations, the Orthodox community, again, I think a positive development is playing a bigger and bigger role. It certainly plays a disproportionate role in the Republican Party, um, but also um, a strong role in the Democratic Party. And what, what I guess the bias that I have, and when I say bias, I mean a positive bias, what attracts me um, in part to engaging with the Orthodox community is the level of seriousness of purpose and, and the deep devotion that the Orthodox community brings to topics relating to Israel. So, um, and that's not to say uh, to be exclusive of other communities and their seriousness, but, but there is something very special, of course, about the commitment that Orthodox Jews bring to the American-Israeli relationship. And for younger people, there's also, and, and obviously, um, um, educators can speak to this better than I, but there's, a, there's an inherent tension that needs to be addressed. A love of Israel, a, a true Zionist spirit 
but also a quest to know as much as possible. And, and that's where I think um, the partnership uh, between us and, and institutions like SAR is so um, potentially powerful because my view is Israel's a miracle. And, and it's, 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 it's bigger than um, a miracle in the sense that the truth sells. That's the greatness about Israel. You can tell the truth. You can, you can talk about um, um, events, both historical and current, in a truthful fashion and come out with a big win. But for younger people today, if they get a sense that they're only getting 50% of the story or 60% of the story, I don't think you're doing their education justice. So the idea is as objective as possible, and that's not easy, but as objective as possible to present current affairs, historical uh, facts and narratives um, in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a way where our children can internalize it and be proud at the end. So that brings me to you, Tully, and uh, the other side of this partnership. And uh, the partnership with the Center for Middle East Peace and with Robert really is a, uh, a later stage of some of the work that you have done and that Machon Siach has done uh, on Israel education and on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Can you share with us some of the work that you've done on the challenges and opportunities uh, of teaching um, high school students uh, about these topics? Sure. Um, of course, uh, SAR is an institution, and I, I think that it is one of um, of uh, many uh, yeshiva high schools uh, that make up our uh, yeshiva network. Have a strong commitment to Zionism and to the state of Israel, and for many years have been very committed to teaching our students um, the history of Zionism, to establishing a strong connection to the state of Israel. Hopefully, having people make aliyah and and move to Israel. Uh, we've done that job of teaching Zionism pretty well, could be better. We've worked on advocacy uh, reasonably well, could be better. Uh, but a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to um, go on an encounter trip, which uh, took, uh, I was a member of a cohort that uh, visited the uh, Palestinian territories, It's listened uh, to very passionate speakers of different sorts, some who had very strong negative feelings towards the state and uh, of Israel and, and expressed those, some who um, had much warmer feelings, some who had transitioned mean meaningfully over the course of their time from deep anger to trying to build connection and relationship. And uh, through that experience, I felt that there was a, it was really a personal experience of a whole dimension and discourse that I felt like I had not been exposed to, and that uh, our community of uh, teachers and, 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 and students, I'm not sure we're exposed to either. And so that raised a question for me in terms of how complete, I guess I'm you know, echoing something that Robert said uh, before about uh, if our students are getting 60% of the picture, and uh, you know, what, what's missing for them in terms of a deeper understanding um, on that experience, that, during that uh, series of experiences, it brought back to mind some communications I had received over the years from graduates who moved on to college campus and 
heard certain things and said, um, you know, I never really uh, heard another part of the story or the complexity of this. And it's not only about narratives. It's actually about understanding, we will get to this afterwards, the kind of complexity of decision-making facing Israelis as insiders um, now. So what I did at the time, uh, just as in the interest of, and this is a driving part of what Machon Siach is about, is to be able to learn more in an area where a large question comes up and try to invest the time to not necessarily bring it to a classroom yet, but to just spend time exploring. Yeah. And so I gathered a group of uh, educators and scholars, and we spent a year reading, uh, reading and meeting once a month, um, and then ultimately writing uh, for each other to be able to read. And some of that is uh, coming out. Michael Koppel's paper that you mentioned earlier is a product of that series. And we spent a, a year doing that work together and uh, another part of the year sharing what we what we wrote. Um, but that just, uh, it, it, it kind of, it fed a desire to be able to broaden that out and say, can our teachers engage in that kind of conversation? I, I would say one more thing for the moment, which is it felt to me then that while we do teach Zionist history, and I think we do it well, I feel like the past 25 years is much tougher, much more difficult. Uh, I think uh, our teaching of history is exactly that. It is teaching history. Uh, and there are complex issues that are on the table uh, now that in order to feel like an insider, in order to be activist, in order to be involved, um, and for our, our kids to be able to think deeply and meaningfully as they enter adulthood and take leadership positions on their own, it's important to have a full understanding of... Uh, of, of the tough decisions and the different perspectives. And so that brought me to uh, trying to find a way to bring more of our educational, educational community um, into conversation with experts uh, to be able to learn, learn deeply about this. And this is where I come into the story um, because a couple of years ago, uh, the Center for Middle East Peace, Robert and Lori, uh, Robert's wife, um, who was working at the time at the center, uh, convened a number of community rabbis uh, to visit Israel, Orthodox community rabbis to visit Israel and to uh, experience the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a really intense, uh, sophisticated, informative way. It was, it was a transformative trip for me. It was something that I reported back to my community, and we've brought some of the participants from that trip and some of the experts we met, we brought Sheikh Badir and Rabbi Melchior last year, right before, right before COVID hit. Um, but the entire time I was on that trip, really from, from the, the first day that we spent um, meeting Sheikh Badir and seeing that exhibit, which was so shocking in, in, uh, in, uh, Kafir Qasim, yeah, Kafir Qasim. I thought to myself, this is great for rabbis, but adults in the Orthodox community already have fully formed positions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And while rabbis can do a great deal leading their communities, there was something missing. There was a way to bring in educators into this conversation. So I, even on that trip, I was speaking with Robert and Lori about the idea then I came home and shared with Tully and Rivka Schwartz 
um, the experience, and it took a few months. Uh, but then I got the two institutions together and the two people, Tully and Robert especially, who I think are both wonderful people and capable of collaborating collaborating together. And out of that, this this educators cohort was born. So I'm I'm pretty proud that I helped birth this uh, this partnership. Uh, but I want to talk and hear from both of you about what the experience um, of the process of collaborating together uh, on this educators cohort um, and what that's been like and how that has has gone. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we haven't been able to do the the intense week-long trip, but we hope to to do that this summer. And so I'm going to begin with you, Tully, and ask you about um, what that process of collaborating has been like and why you found it meaningful to engage other school communities in this project. Sure. Uh, the, the process has, has actually been a, a gift. Uh, I think I want to start with um, to, by, by sharing the, almost in, in the theory of it in a certain sense. I am a very firm believer that the opportunity for educators, people who are experts in education in the classroom and the matters of teaching kids and people who are expert in different areas of that we teach to, that those groups should come together in a serious, mutual, uh, mutually respecting and mutually informing uh, experience of learning together. In this instance, what that meant is that we have teachers, we certainly are not uh, going to solve the conflict. Our voices are not, they, they can have some significance as any citizen of the United States can be significant uh, in terms of being involved in an activist way. But most significant, what we are responsible for, and it really is a responsibility, is uh, educating our kids about Israel and the conflict and all that goes with that. We have a certain expertise in that area, but we are also lacking. We don't, uh, we are not the uh, the experts in uh, the, the political areas and uh, actually the, the, the facts on the ground and the history and being able to uh, 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 have a deep and respectful uh, conversation, one that can allow kind of everyone to grow is extremely rewarding. And when we began the conversation with uh, Robert, it was it, it actually has taken the form of, uh, of exactly that. Um, different expertises coming together in order to enrich educational opportunities, uh, both for the adults, the teachers, and, uh, and for the ultimately, hopefully, for, for the kids. Where it began for us was, in concept, uh, it, it, uh, Robert has said many times that the idea here is for it to be an, an enhancement for schools. That means that uh, on the assumption that schools are already engaged in this effort very with great commitment and success, that this should be able to offer something that can help shape, help them go deeper um, and, and take it further. So for us, in concept, it was about having schools have the opportunity to engage in this, both in a way that would generate discourse across school institutions. And uh, we, our, hope is that, our hope was that it would help generate discourse across institutions and with the Center for Middle East Peace, but that dynamic of being able to know what's going on in other schools, share openly 
uh, beliefs, reservations, what we know, what we need to know, and to be able to talk to each other and to leaders at the center and leaders in the field was very powerful. Uh, we asked to have three representatives from each school who participate as a cohort uh, within the larger cohort. So we designed a cohort to be five schools with three representatives from each school, including uh, an administrator. And our hope was not to say uh, at the end we expect a particular kind of result, but we expect serious engagement and uh, openness to uh, what we will see and hear and to be able to talk to each other with integrity and honesty uh, and, and that that should be a respectful process so that each school could have an internal conversation but also have a conversation across the educational community. And that's the model, the way that we uh, set up, set it up. One of the things that I, I was most impressed with on my trip with the Center for Middle East Peace as a, a synagogue rabbi was how much you, Robert, and your team were looking to us to help you figure out the to improve the trip and to make it more impactful. And one of the things that I was so excited about was kind of observing how you reshaped uh, the the trip and how you would focus the uh, the sessions before the trip specifically for educators. So what have you learned from working with Tully and with the group of educators? Uh, that you now feel like has really enhanced uh, the work of the of the center? That's a great question. Uh, I only knew from political meetings um, and political related trips, and they have a certain value. Um, but what what I myself experienced, um, and my my wife Lori reminds me this uh, quite often, is that, a political perspective is really but one of several required perspectives to fully understand a conflict. And as many times as I had visited Israel and the Palestinian territories as a member of Congress, I don't know how many times, 30, 40, I don't know. Um, I don't think I ever focused on narratives. And I'm also embarrassed to say, and I am truly embarrassed to say, that I was a part of a large group of members of Congress and diplomats who rarely, if ever, focused on the religious aspects of the conflict. We were unifocused on the political. And by being solely or primarily focused on the political, you miss the factors that make up the communities and the dreams and the aspirations and also, unfortunately, the anger and what drives people to do unthinkable things, you often miss the most important factors. And so uh, in the context of the trips with the rabbis and then ultimately now with the educators, what we've had to do in a more comprehensive way, and we're still learning, but uh, certainly, is to bring in more and more of the educational, religious, narrative, societal factors and match them or, or equate them in some type of coherent uh, presentation with the political factors. And just having gone through that exercise and continuing to go through that exercise, I, I do believe personally has made me 
uh, a wiser person and more knowledgeable, um, not just in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but, but to be able to apply those kinds of considerations in a broader sense. And maybe it's what in the education field is, is called multi, you know, multidiscipline, combining disciplines. But the, the other wonderful thing, if I may say, in terms of the educators, um, and, and this is brought out, I think, quite often, um, I have nothing but admiration and respect for rabbis, the role that they play and the devotion and commitment that's required uh, to be a rabbi. Um, but of course, as the leader of a, of a community, um, there are certain constraints that a rabbi has in terms of how far afield the rabbi can lead a discussion at times um, and, 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 and similar internal politics. But in the education field, uh, educators, I, I think it's fair to say, have, while certainly their own internal politics, have a, a freer degree um, to explore. And so that's exciting for us to work with the educators to explore. And then there's the obvious. After four uh, cohorts of Orthodox rabbis, simply having some women involved in the process was a, a great relief because, uh, of course, women add to the discussion and the debate in, in a very enriching way. I want to talk a little bit about the shift from the first cohort, which uh, you ran in the 2019-2020 educational or academic year, and the second cohort, which you're in the middle of uh, right now. Uh, I'm curious as to what what has changed or what kind of tweaks you've made to the to the program over the course of the two years. And just to kind of give a little context, the 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 cohort ultimately concludes with this trip to Israel, but there are monthly meetings on Zoom exploring specific topics. So I guess I'm I'm curious about whether those topics have have been changed or tweaked or what the emphasis uh, of the program has been. Let's start with you, Tully. Uh, I, I think that the, uh, the program's actually grown and shifted it a, a lot from year one to year two, primarily in terms of uh, its being focused and uh, very uh, directed in terms of uh, what it is that we are uh, trying to learn about. I would say that yeah, I, I am very excited about the trip. God willing, it should happen this summer. But even in these months last year, the exposure to different personalities, presenters, leaders, uh, you, know, you know, peacemakers, intellectuals, politicians, is extremely has been extremely enriching. What happened this year was that all that content from last year was transformed into four areas of focus, where at this point we can say the, these are the areas that this will uh, help, that you have an opportunity to, to broaden out and think more deeply about. Uh, the four issues are uh, core issues, uh, which has to do with security, borders, and other things. Relig religious peace building, as Robert mentioned, and narratives, uh, mature the others, and, and looking to the future, which in this particular time, with all of the uh, changes across the, the Abraham Accords and what's happening in the broader Middle East, and the role of the United States in that process. So what's happened in the second year is that it has developed into much more of a course with 
four, four areas with lead educator in each of those uh, topics. And um, I, th I think that uh, it's, it's narrowed the focus and opened up the possibility of the educators really talking to each other and figuring out how they can translate that for, for use in a classroom. Robert, I, 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 I would turn to you to ask you a little bit about the Abraham Accords that Tilly just mentioned. One of the, one of the conventional wisdom points uh, about the Abraham Accords is that it maybe has allowed for a, an alternative to, to narrowing the conflict or another path to kind of work around the conflict, work around the Palestinian issue in order to enhance Israel's standing overall in the region. I haven't had a chance to talk to you a little bit about that, so I, I'm curious to hear what the, your position and what the, the, the Middle East Peace Center thinks about the issue and, and the developments of the Abraham Accords and how that's impacted your work. Um, the normalization agreements with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan are an extraordinary achievement, a wonderful development, welcomed by any American um, who cares about Israel and cares about uh, peace in the Middle East. Um, and I, I think it's actually a more remarkable achievement than some even recognize. Having said that, though, um, to suggest that uh, now, because we have the Abraham Accords, that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict can be pushed aside or minimized, I think would be an illustration of the zero-sum type of thinking that has unfortunately dominated um, the Israeli-Palestinian, the Israeli-Arab conflict, conflict for decades. Um, for me, it's just the opposite. How on the achievements of the uh, Abraham Accords, do we leverage, hopefully, the new dynamic in the Middle East to ultimately include the most important country in this context, which is Saudi Arabia um, and others, Oman, Kuwait, and the list goes on, of course, and even broader from just Arab countries to include countries like Indonesia and Pakistan. Um, how do we include those countries in the process? And rather than only have Israel and those particular countries be the beneficiaries or the victors, how can Palestinians achieve a victory as well or benefit from these types of arrangements? Because it isn't a zero-sum game. Um, the fact is, economic achievement for Palestinians will inure to the benefit of Israel. The fact is a political horizon for Palestinians, ultimately, in my respectful view, will benefit Israel greatly. So the, the occurrence and the significance of the Abraham Accords should not be minimized. They should be celebrated. And the challenge that the Biden administration has is how to build upon them and build upon them in a way that Israel continues to benefit and even benefit even more, and how to bring the Palestinians into the equation so that they can benefit too. And what a wonderful set of um, uh, pressure points, and I say that in a positive way, that, that is now a part of this equation. When Israel made peace with Egypt, and when Israel made peace with Jordan, 
Of course, those are monumental achievements that have significant ramifications. But neither Egypt or Jordan, of course, uh, are economic powers in, in their own right. Now we have participants that are economic powers and can use that economic power um, in very positive ways. And, and once that type of leverage is introduced into the Israeli-Arab-Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking process, um, I believe the, the parties can achieve great results. And so that's the, the challenge that the Biden administration, I believe, is presented with, but it's a very promising challenge. And all of this, of course, is, is uh, uh, occurring with the backdrop of an Iranian nuclear program, which is an entirely different subject, but which impacts all of this. And what I hope, just sum up to say, is that the lesson of the Abraham Accord, one of the lessons, is that the United States, Israel, and our, and our Gulf partners can collaborate and cooperate as well as we did to make peace and normalize relations between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain, that we can act accordingly in the same fashion to confront Iran's nuclear ambitions as well as the nefarious conduct that they unfortunately um, continue to practice throughout the region. It's, it's great that you bring the point of, of uh, having the Abraham Accords not just redound to Israel's benefit, but to have it be for the entire region. Because as you were speaking, it occurred to me that one of the pressing issues right now in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could be resolved or narrowed with that kind of thinking. Uh, we are now teaching our seniors, second semester of senior year, we have modern Israel uh, history as a course, and we also have Jewish identity as a course. And one of the things that came up in the classes is, is the issue of vaccination for Palestinians in the West Bank and, and Gaza. And this is one kind of example of how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict plays out in real time in very significant ways. And I think one of the things that's been difficult for us as educators in real time is to figure out how to, how to wrap our heads around that and how to speak about it in, a, in an educational way. And maybe uh, the way to engage with it is to talk about the, the responsibilities of everyone in the region, including the Israelis, towards the Palestinians and, and the health and the well-being of, of all human beings in, in that area. I'm not sure if that resonates with you, Tully, in, in, in a way, or if you figured out how to talk about that in class in a way that I haven't. No, it resonates very much. I think that the, uh, we, we sometimes underestimate the amount of uh, work it takes to, um, to, to, to learn about, to consider carefully, to be able to translate what that kind of content for classroom use in a way that's educationally sound and developmentally appropriate for where our kids are at. Um, and I think that uh, you know, dedicating time and resources for that to happen is extremely important. It does not happen by reading an article in the paper and then bringing it to class the next day. It can happen that way, but that's uh, not the, the most thoughtful way for that, uh, for that to happen. I think this kind of work uh, is really important in the short term, but it's important as it builds on itself over the course of time. It's a way of thinking about it. Last question for you, Robert. We are going to be 
showing portions of the inauguration tomorrow in school. We do it every four years. It's also my birthday. I was born on Jimmy Carter's inauguration day, and tomorrow I'll be turning 44. Good Happy tidbit birthday. for the friends of the podcast. Robert, I was curious what your plans are for tomorrow. Are you able to participate in some way? Are you watching from home? What's, the, what's, what's, your, uh, what's your inauguration day uh, uh, itinerary looking like? Tomorrow I'll just be watching like uh, every other American. I've, I've had the privilege of being at several inaugurations, Democrats and Republicans. It's a thrilling experience. Um, this one, uh, like, like most people I'll watch on television and, and, um, be uh, mindful of, of the, of, of the, the challenges that the new president has to confront. Um, and, and in fact, the, that the country has to confront, um, arguably since World War II, our nation has not confronted a myriad of challenges to this degree uh, simultaneously, health, economic, uh, security, cybersecurity, um, uh, financial challenges all at once. And if ever uh, we as a nation were screaming out for some degree of unity, it is now. Um, and um, at the same time, of course, there are pressures and reasons um, for us to debate the legacy of President Trump and his administration. And, and we need a sophisticated, um, reasoned uh, way forward. And I realize people have their own uh, partisan and political beliefs, but I think possibly one of the most promising aspects of President-elect Biden is, is that he is a measured man of great experience. And selfishly, from the perspective of the Jewish community, um, I've known uh, Senator Vice President Biden for decades. Um, he arguably comes to the office of the presidency with deeper, more profound connections with the Jewish community than any other individual who has uh, served as president of the United States. And that should give us great hope. And we also should be quite proud um, the number of Jewish Americans that will serve in cabinet and sub-cabinet posts are remarkably high. But what makes me the most proud is not the number of Jewish Americans. I mean, we if they're confirmed, the Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Treasury Secretary, um, Attorney General, Director of Intelligence, uh, Deputy Director of the CIA, the list goes on and on. But what's most remarkable, it's not a story. Nobody cares. That's the greatness of America. And, and that, I think, as a community, we should celebrate Republicans and Democrats alike. Robert, well, I, just, I want to take the app. And listening to that last statement, I wanted to say this anyway, but uh, you know, I... I uh, it's inspiring to listen to you now and uh, always. Uh, you are so thoughtful uh, in the way that you think about these issues. But I also want to take the opportunity to express gratitude to you and to the center's team. I think that this has been a, a very enriching experience for right now thir 30 educators, 10 yeshiva administrators, uh, 10 different uh, schools, community, school communities. Uh, 
And it's it's really a pleasure to work with you. It's our honor. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to having you both back on after, God willing, you get to Israel and run the first actual trip for these educators. And I think that will be not just a capstone, but like it was for me, a transformative experience. Thank you again, Robert. I want to encourage everyone to check out the this month's edition of Inside the Conversation with a lot of interesting papers uh, and this podcast on the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And uh, we're, we're excited and, and really thankful that you were here and uh, wish you all the best. Have a good afternoon.